You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In lesson three of the Hebrews warning module, Philip Edwards will be teaching on God's reaction to deliberate sin and the consequences of defying him. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can see all the latest news, events and the other ministries we have to offer and also now study past modules with us. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. We just present ourselves this evening to learn and to receive from you uh, that we will understand uh, about you more and uh, we'll learn to love you more and appreciate everything you're doing for us every day. Lord, bless our ears, uh, those that listen, and bless my tongue, Lord, as I seek to uh, look at these scriptures and open them up this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at the last two warnings uh, this evening. The warning against deliberately keeping on sinning, which is a serious thing. And the last one is the warning against refusing God's grace, not receiving what God has made available to us. Warning then against deliberately keeping on sinning. As we've progressed through these uh, these studies, and we looked at these different warnings, we see that they're getting more and more severe as, as, as we look at each one. It's a bit like a parent starts to say to his child, now you need to stop doing this, and then of course the child just carries on, and then you say something a bit firmer, something a bit stronger, and then eventually it, it causes some action uh, to happen. And the, the parent hopefully doesn't do it because they're so frustrated and angry they, they vent their anger on it, but it's to protect the child. The child needs to stop uh, doing that thing. So the first warning is pay attention. Do not drift in your Christianity neglecting the things of God. Do what I say or drifting will lead to unbelief. Unless you do what I say, I'll have to take action. I'll have to discipline your unbelief. Now I must discipline you because falling away will lead to a life of deliberate sin. So we see as we put it in that form, it's getting stronger and stronger and he's getting more and more concerned because he doesn't want his children to lose out on anything. This fourth warning, then, is something of a, a, a trumpet blast warning. It's like we've got to serious measures here, so please, please. The first three are simple uh, verbal warnings, but this one we see that God is going to take action to stop the problem. I have to turn you to the scripture we're going to study together, and uh, you'll appreciate we've read great long chunks of Hebrews uh, epistle. Uh, so you've, you've not only benefited from learning about the, the warnings, but um, you've done an overall study of Hebrews, really, and we haven't left uh, too much out. So uh, and we've got this one and another one before we finish. So it's Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read from verses 26 to 39. It says this, 
If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You understand what I mean by it's getting really severe now? He's talking really, really strongly, and this is to Christians he's talking to. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Serious, serious uh, passage of scripture there we've got to unpack this evening. How does God interpret a life of continual deliberate sin? What does, what does he think when he sees this? As in the warnings that we've had before, God isn't dealing with any particular sin. No sin has been mentioned, just the general attitude about sin. So when we were talking about drifting away, no, no particular sin was mentioned. And, and in all the other dealings, uh, no, no particular sin, but an attitude, an attitude of disobedience towards God. What does God think when he sees his child continually disobeying, going his own way, not listening, not caring what God is wanting for his life. How does God deal with this? How does he think about it? What is going through his mind? In this warning, we see the, uh, the, the response of both, well, of all three, really, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the father's perspective first of all. He sees, he sees the blood of Jesus being trampled underfoot. What, what does that mean? The father has sent his son 
to stand in the way of people, to arrest people in their sin, to stop them sinning and to cause them to move in a new direction. But he says, to me, the father says, here is Jesus standing in the way trying to stop you and you just rush, you push him aside, he falls to the ground and you simply run over him because you're going so fast and headlong into your sin. Christ is trying to stop you, but you're having nothing to do with it. Trampling him underfoot. From the son's perspective, he has given his blood to ratify a covenant between yourself and God. He has poured out his blood, which is a holy, precious thing. You see, He seems to be saying, just as water is poured into a basin and a man or woman might wash their hands and then toss the water away, the blood of Jesus has been poured out for the cleansing of sin, but is being rejected by those who should know better. It's as though they don't care that Christ has given his blood. For that, it doesn't matter to them, they don't think about it. And for the Holy Spirit's perspective, the Holy Spirit is insulted, he's insulted as the door, the door that because he, he is the one who brings the truth, he is the one who, who is saying these things to us. We slam a door in his face as much as to say, I'm not interested. What do you have to say? He's come to us in the spirit of grace to say God wants to support you and help you and forgive you, but we've turned our back. So in that passage, that's the perspective of both the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're insulting all three of them when we deliberately, when we deliberately choose to sin. What can the person expect then? if we live like this and act like this. It would be wrong for me to water down this severe discipline uh, that is going to be meted out. We, We like to think of Jesus meek and mild, don't we? God all the time being nice to us and just overlooking all of this stuff, this this wonderful age of grace in which we live in where, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, well, reading my Bible, it does matter. It's very serious. And we look around the church and sometimes we think, how come the Christian world doesn't measure up to what I read in the scriptures? Well, it's no wonder, really. If we take everything so lightly, so glibly, that we can then expect the God that we read about in Scripture to be moving in our lives, because God doesn't do it irrespective of us. God moves powerfully through us and in us. He, he has to move through the channels because that's how he set the whole thing up. There won't be healings unless the people of God bring themselves into a place where they can minister the healings. There won't be anything unless the people of God are there. Of course, God can do it all. He doesn't need us. But he does, because that's what it is. It's about us and it's about him. And so we play a, a vital, important part in the whole of this. So look at this severe uh, warning, this severe discipline here. Hebrews 10 and, th- and 27. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume 
the enemies of God. That sounds absolutely terrifying. Now, I just remind you, these scriptures are written to Christians. You say, is that possible? Yet he's called us here his enemies. Surely Christians aren't enemies of God? How is this possible? How can a born-again believer find himself in such a position as being called an enemy of God? <laughs> Sin is a very powerful agent. We can, we can determine not to, and before the day's out, we have. <laughs> is it that powerful? Oh, it is, it is. In an earlier warning, we've seen how the children of Israel angered God through their unbelief. And although they were saved by the blood of the Lamb, as it were, into the promised inheritance, the blood was put on the lintels and the doorposts, and as they went out in faith, under and through the blood, and there was a, a promise of a, a fantastic inheritance. Can you imagine the joy and the excitement of them being brought into liberty and freedom under and through the blood and, and everyone piling all their riches on them and they, they were going to be free. They were going to enter and, and go into this wonderful place that God... None of them did. Not one of them did. They all died in the desert because of they allowed sin to dominate their lives. You say, God wants so much for us. But if we let sin dominate our lives, we're not going to get it. They never got it. And there, there is a warning for us. If we're not careful, we won't get it either. 1.2 million probably died in the desert. That's a lot of people. And only the youngsters who, those under 20 when they went out, survived that. And then were the, the people to go into the promised land. They never entered their rest because of their disobedience. Scripture points out that there are sins that lead to death. Although redeemed by Christ's blood, there are sins that will open the door to Satan and his influence on the believer's life, that death takes him prematurely. We, it's we that open the door to the enemy. It says in 1 John 5 and 16, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. You see then, there are sins that we commit that will lead to death. They open the door for the enemy to come in and prematurely we're destroyed. What sin is it that might lead to death? It says in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 28 to 30, where Paul is talking about uh, taking communion, the bread and the wine. Listen to what he says here. He said, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and he drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, 
and a number of you have fallen asleep. When he speaks about the body of the Lord, who or what is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about the Lord's body. I think he's talking about the body of believers. So to treat a Christian brother or sister with contempt, to look down on them as it were, to make sure you're all right, it's okay with you, and you don't care about their needs, you, you're not interested in meeting their needs, it will leave or lead to the most severe discipline from the Lord. What was the sin of Sodom? We might jump in there with an answer and say, well, homosexuality, you would be wrong. You would be absolutely wrong because scripture says what their sin was. You'll be surprised what it is. I'll tell you, it's in Ezekiel 16:49. It says this, but this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, listen to what they were like. They were arrogant. They were overfed and they were unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Isn't that interesting? That's almost the description that Paul is given to the Christians who are not discerning the poor and the needy in their own fellowship, but they're just arrogant. They're eating everything that they want for themselves, arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. And what was the judgment of God? He just wiped the whole community out. See, all this stuff in the Old Testament, it is a warning for us in the new. It says this again and again and again, all through Hebrews. This is given to you as a warning. It's a warning. It's a warning. And because we know God doesn't change. He is the God of the Old Testament, and he is the God of the New Testament. So when he sees what he saw in Sodom in the church, in the church, you can imagine how angry it makes him and how he wants to deal with that thing. I'll just read that passage again from Corinthians. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper, he says, that you're eating. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not, he says. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, his brothers and sisters, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we do not be condemned with the world. It's getting serious, like I said. The warnings get more and more serious. 
And of course, there's the example of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, we read about that in Acts chapter 5, through 1 through to 11. Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, agreed that they would lie and deceive uh, to Peter and, and to the church. It says in that passage, if we were to read it there, that Satan had filled their hearts. They gave way to lying and covetous and deceitful spirits, which were able to control their very actions and their thoughts and the things that they did. And then in Acts 5, verses 5 and 10, it says this, When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. But you say, God doesn't do that today. Well, God will always deal with people's sinfulness and deliberate sinfulness. Maybe because the church was, was just a fledgling church, maybe it was just getting started, and to have this sort of behavior from mature Christians in the church, God says, this isn't going to happen. And he simply takes them away, takes them out of the scene. I don't think they lost their salvation, but they weren't going to continue in that place doing those things to the church. Maybe they had influence in the church over many uh, young and new converts. And he said, I can't leave you there. You're too dangerous. The church needs all the help it can to survive, to, to grow. As I said, God doesn't always take the life of rebellious believers, but he will always deal with them. Because like a parent watches over the child, he can't allow the child to just do whatever the child wants to do. He has to take action. And his love, maybe for that child or even for the other siblings in the family, action has to be taken. I worked for quite a number of years with uh, 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 drug addict type people. And I, I remember going to funerals, uh, if I was involved in that, and I would meet with the parents. And they, they often told me how the only thing they could do was push their, these, these uh, drug addict children away from them to save their own children. They couldn't allow them to remain because it would have been so destructive on the other children. So they hated to do it. They hated to push them away, but they, they, they had to move them out of that situation. And it helped to move them out of the environment where they were. But, you know, it's a terrible thing. Hebrews 10 and 30 and 31, it says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's look at Paul's take on this very subject. We find a passage in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 11 verses there, the first 11 verses. He says this, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers. <laughs> so what he's assuming is we are ignorant, or we're acting as though we're ignorant. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Let's get this right, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. So he's saying they were all saved and they, they passed through the sea in the same way that you pass through the waters of baptism. They were just like us. 
They were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So he's saying, listen, they were just like us. They weren't born again in so much that they received the Spirit unto them, but they were the children of God. They were the covenant children of God. They, they had gone through this under the blood experience, through the water experience, and now they were being ministered to by Christ himself in the desert. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up and indulged in pagan revelry. That's the first thing. The second is, we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So he's brought this, this example, this picture in the Old Testament, and he's planted it right in the New Testament in the heart of his teaching to say, listen, this God who did this, is the same God we worship today. So don't treat sin lightly. God doesn't just wink at it and, and, and just ignore it. He treats it really seriously. And listen, the examples that he picks. He talks about uh, the it, sexually immoral sin. And in the other hand, he talks about grumbling. He seems to not think that, as though there were no difference between the two. It's as though the first he sends snakes in to destroy them, and then he sends the angel in to destroy them. It's like, hang on a minute. Is it the same? Well, in the sight of God, the sins have different gravity about them. I understand that. But to God, he says, this, is, this, this uh, immoral sexual behavior is as poisonous and as de uh, devastating to, to the body of Christ as he's grumbling and moaning and complaining, it's just as disastrous to my children. So I will, I will deal with them severely because I'm jealous for my church. Paul, Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant. In God's anger, their bodies were scattered in the desert. That conjures up for me all sorts of imagery in my mind. Just like, just every day people were dying in the desert. Just, just buried them where they were, just dying, dying. And, and we know that people used to live maybe 120 years when they set off. By the time they were finished, they only lived 70 years. God reduced the time that people would live on the earth the average time. He was dealing with their sin. These warnings, he says, they're an example to us. This isn't just a story from the Old Testament. They're a warning to us not to set our hearts, he says, on evil things. 
I do not believe that God's discipline leads to a loss of salvation, but it can lead to a loss of life. God can choose to do that. It's important to remember that every Christian should obey God and please him all of the time. Dealing with sin, then, is a requirement of the church, which the church often doesn't do too well. It doesn't deal with sin like it should. It somehow would fudge over it or, or just hope that it goes away or that person goes away. Instead of moving towards the person who is digging a big hole for themselves and lovingly and patiently and kindly bringing them to a place. It's wrong to just hit the table and judge people and condemn them and drive them out of the church. That's not what the church is all about. But to confront people in their sin and lovingly bring them back to a place. Leading the offender through kindness towards God. Remember when David sinned, he committed both adultery and murder, without a doubt. And Nathan the prophet goes to him, remember? He tells him this wonderful story about uh, a sheep, uh, you know, that the king had stolen. And David doesn't get it. I can't believe that David, who walked so close with the Lord, he didn't get what he had done was wrong. He never saw any wrong in what he did at all. And even when Nathan comes, he doesn't even get what Nathan is saying to him. And Nathan has to spell it out for him. You see, people sin and they don't know it. Or they make so many excuses why they're doing it and they justify it that they actually don't think it's a problem to God. They're not basing what they're saying on the word of God. They're basing it on what they feel like or what they feel is fair and just. 2 Samuel 12 and 9. This is what the prophet says to him. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You see, although he got someone else to do it, it was the same as if you had done it. He said, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. What did God do? He forgave him. He forgave him. Nathan had been sent to speak to him and to show the person his sin and to say, listen, God wants to redeem this situation. So as we point out sin to people, it isn't to condemn them or make them feel bad. It's to redeem the situation. But he suffered, didn't he? As a consequence for years after. We will make decisions in our lives to sin. And we will suffer for years after the consequences of the decisions that we've made. It's not that we haven't been forgiven, but, but actions have consequences. And although God might forgive us, he can't, he can't just, as though it never happened. It, 
If a man is unfaithful to his wife or a wife is unfaithful to her husband, they, the pair of them have to live with that for the rest of their lives. You can't just sweep it away as though it never happened. And there could be forgiveness on all sides by all parties, including God first, but you live with the consequences of that. The consequences if you got back together again, that would she ever really trust him? Would he ever really trust her? Even though forgiveness has taken place. And if, if children are born outside of wedlock, you can't get rid of the child. It's there. And the consequences of that, they continue in your life. It's, it's not evil or the continuation of sin. It's just a fact that it continues. It says in 2 Samuel 12, 10 and 14, Now therefore, he says to him, Nathan says to him, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you despise me, and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but because of doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. And of course, as we read through the scriptures, he did die. He was taken from him. Oh, you say, oh, that's Old Testament. None of that applies today. Somehow, we all live under grace, and God doesn't care about that. God can't change. God's always been gracious. <laughs> David should have been dead, what he did. He should have been taken out and killed. Uh, that's just the fact. But God was gracious to him. God let him live. You see, living under the New Testament, we're still subject to blessings and curses. They still apply. It isn't just an Old Testament thing, blessings and curses. They're there. God blesses when he can, but when he can't, the enemy moves in and he exacts from us what he can because we've opened the door to him. That's a curse. And God, God has ordained it to happen, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God said, he said, if you do this, I'll do this. If you don't do this, this will happen to you. And the enemy knows the scriptures and he comes and he takes from that. And so we have covenant in the New Testament. It is called the new covenant. And we need to know the terms of the covenant. What has God promised and what do we have to do in return? And what if we don't do this? What will happen if we don't do it? The scripture tells us it's not hidden from us. Do we have to live under these curses? Christ, it says, became a curse for us. And by appropriating his death as redemptive for the curse in our lives, we can be delivered from its effect. <laughs> How many Christians today know this doctrine? Very few. 
So how could they ever be delivered from the curse if they don't even know that all the time when they're walking and deliberately sinning, they're opening up the opportunity for a curse to come upon their lives? We think, oh, God wouldn't do this. Oh, fortunately, he does do it. He does do it. And, and we, we can't live ignorant of the scriptures. And we've got to do what the scriptures tell us to do if we want to walk in liberty and freedom that Christ has won for us. Everything that Christ has done for us, it doesn't come automatically to us. One, because it's a covenant walk and we have to appropriate by faith everything that Christ has done for us. You will never, never be delivered of a curse simply because God thinks you're a good fella or a good girl. He won't do that. We have to appropriate it by faith and we have to receive maybe the ministry that is necessary so we break the curses that are over our lives and we walk in liberty and freedom that Christ has won for us. This warning, it's a bit scary. The warning I'm sharing with you now is given to mature Christians no, not, not, not sinners, not those outside of the kingdom. We read there how much they had sacrificed. He's talking to these people, these people who stood your ground in face of suffering, these people who were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. And he said, you stood side by side who were those who were ill-treated. You supported those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. But now they're rebelling, openly rebelling against God. That's what David did. When you think how David passionately loved the Lord, passionately, read those Psalms. I mean, he was just, just so in love with his God. And yet, how did he fulfill such a rebellious act? And it wasn't when he was young. He was quite mature in his walk with the Lord. See, sin is deceptive. And we allow it to deceive us. Because we enjoy the taste of sin. He says in this passage that we've read, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Keep pressing on. Don't slip back. Don't be defiant. Don't disobey. Don't let sin master you. You need to persevere to receive what God has promised to you. It will take perseverance. Oh, God, I've waited so long. Persevere. Persevere. <laughs> it's not about how you start this life. It's how you finish it that counts. It's always that way. It's how you finish. You must finish strong. See, the danger is when we get older, we can become complacent about sin in our lives. Like, oh, I've walked on this road for a long time, you know. No, that's, that's not the way to live your Christian life. It says keep your eyes on him all the time. The author and the finisher of your faith. The one who got you going and the one who will bring you to the end don't ever take your eyes off Jesus, focused all the time. See, there's a danger as we get old. Oh, I know all about this. And we take our eyes off Jesus. 
it intensifies at the end. Poor old Abraham. I always think of poor old Abraham. All that he did, all the challenges he faced, everything. Then right at the end, he gets the biggest challenge of all. I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son. You think, oh, does this ever stop? God? No. Maybe the greatest challenges will come at the end, at the very end of our lives. Those who shrink back, they won't be lost. I don't believe they will. But they will lose out on what God wanted them to receive. So let's, let's be very careful in our Christian life that we don't willfully sin and disobey the Lord. Thank you. We'll have a little break there. Okay. Lesson six then. The final uh, in the uh, five warnings. We've got two more lessons next week. We'll finish the whole study off and uh, uh, I'll, I'll keep that back for next week, let you know what that is next week. But we're finishing off these, these warnings this week. So the last warning is the warning against refusing God, refusing his grace. In our study so far, the book of Hebrews has pointed out the danger of drifting, not paying attention to our relationship with Jesus Christ, then doubting, slipping into unbelief. Thirdly, being dull, refusing to study and build a strong spiritual foundation in our lives. And fourthly, despising God, deliberately sinning. It was a bit heavy. Uh, I don't apologize for it because some scripture is heavy and we just got to work through that stuff. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff and stuff that will cheer you up because the warnings are, are going to be by nature like this. It brings us then to our fifth and our final warning about defying God. Careful you don't defy him, refusing to obey him. A passage of scripture is in Hebrews 12. We're going to read from verses 14 to 29. Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 29. It says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a violent speaking word, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned. 
The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have some, sorry, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In that opening verse, verse 14, we see the goal of the Christian life. It just states two things which are our goal. Make every effort to live in peace with all men. One goal then of the Christian life is to live in peace with all men. And the second one, it says, and to be holy. So that's the goal of our Christian life to live in peace with all men and to be holy. And then a little bit later on, there are two warnings. The first warning is in verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. So what it's inferring is if we miss the grace of God and we refuse him who speaks, we'll never reach these goals. We'll never live at peace with all men and we'll never be holy. Let's look at that first one. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. In your own strength, you cannot do the two things he asks you to do. You cannot live at peace with all men in your own strength and you can't be holy in your own strength. It's only by availing ourselves of the grace of God that is available to us that we'll ever reach these two goals. So the warning is, be careful that you don't miss the grace that's being offered to you, because if you do, you'll never fulfill the goals that Christ has set before you. If God were to ask you, are you living at peace with all men? And are you living a holy life? If we were to ask you that question tonight, what would your answer be? You might say, well, I'm doing my best. Mm, That's not good enough. It's not good enough for God. See, he didn't bring you into a covenant relationship through the blood of Christ for you to do your best. In fact, your best is rubbish. It's not good enough. 
It takes the grace of God in your life to make it even resemble anything that God would require of you. Your best is not good enough. Well, what sort of standard do you expect of me then, Lord? Oh, the standard's obvious, isn't it? His name is Jesus. That's it. Anything less than Jesus is unacceptable. Well, that's a bit of a, a tall order. Well, it would be if I hadn't put my spirit within you to make it all possible and my grace available, that if you draw on my grace, it will change you. And the grace of God isn't something that lands on our head. It's something that works through us. So God's got lots more grace to work through you, but you must allow him to work it through you, to will and to do his good pleasure. So you say, Lord, give me grace for this. He said, well, I'd like to put a bit more through you, but you're, you're not opening up the channels within your own heart and life for my grace to be fed through your life. It's a partnership. It's not me plonking stuff on you. God never dumps stuff on us. He works through us on all occasions. We must draw on God's grace all the time. See, in this world, you will have troubles. That's a promise. A promise by the Lord Jesus Christ. If we love him and follow him, the word of God says people will hate you. So is anyone hating you recently? They need to be, because if not, you're not pushing ahead in Christ the way you should be. You should be upsetting people. Okay, I seem to do that quite easily from the front, okay? Uh, but even in your natural life, as you're pressing on in Jesus, you see, you make people feel uncomfortable around you because you, the way that you conduct yourself makes them feel awkward in your presence and they, they dislike you because of that. Without God's grace in our lives, uh, roots of bitterness, it says, will grow up with inside of us and we'll become bitter people. In that passage that we read, we see two examples where uh, first it was a person who rejected the offer of God's grace and then the nation who refused the offer of God's grace. The first example was there Esau. Esau, Isaac's eldest son, as you read through that story, he cared little for the things of God. Unlike his, his, his younger brother Jacob, he esteemed the blessing. Remember the younger brother was, was cooking a, a nice tasty meal of soup or venison or whatever it was, and the brother came home from hunting in the fields and he was famished, and he said, give me some of this to eat. And he said, if you give me your birthright... It was, a, I'm sure it was like a bit of a joke, but it wasn't a joke, was it, for the younger brother? He was a twister, you see, but he did appreciate the things of God. He thought the blessing, the blessing of God is an important thing. He doesn't care about it, so I'll make sure when the blessing is given by my father, I'll be the one that receives it because I esteem God's blessing. He doesn't care about it at all. 
The birthright, you see, entitled, well, it would always fall to the eldest son. He would have the leadership of the family. A family was no small thing. A family might have hundreds and hundreds of people in it because they would take all sorts of people into their extended families. And you were like, like a king, really, with hundreds and hundreds of people and everything that it meant. You had judicial authority over all of those people. Let's compare the two blessings now. First, the blessing that Esau received because he despised, he despised the things of God and the grace of God. And let's look at, compare that with the blessing that Jacob received that he swindled away from his brother. Esau's blessing. Your dwelling will be away from earth's riches, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke off your neck. Well, it doesn't sound like much of a blessing to me. Now, let's have a look at the blessing that he should have got if he esteemed the things of God like he should have. But he despised the, the grace and the blessing of God. This is what Jacob got in his place. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's riches an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and people bow down to you. Be Lord over your brother and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. See, that's what he wanted. He wanted the blessing of God. He esteemed the things of God as vitally important in his life. The most important thing in our lives is that we esteem God and the grace that he has made available to us and we appropriate that grace into our lives. And it gets to a place where it doesn't matter what's happening around us, whether there's a storm afoot or all people are arrayed against us. When we're walking with him, there is a peace and a serenity that comes because God's grace is being poured into our life. Esau despised what God was offering him. And so his life, as we read in that blessing, was, was awful. It was awful. He rejected God's grace. Now, as we read this, you might think he was a decent sort of likable fellow, wasn't he? You know, just the hunting sort and enjoying life and we probably would have got on with him and he was a, an open sort of a guy. But Jacob, <laughs> he was a terrible man. He was a swindler. He was just like uh, negotiating all the time for his, his, what he could get. You're thinking... If God looked at both of them, he would have preferred Esau to Jacob. But he didn't, did he? He saw something in Jacob that he loved. And he saw something in Esau that he hated. He hated it. The scripture tells us in Romans 9 and 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau have I hated. And he says, before they were ever born, I loved one and hated the other. It's like, whoa, that seems a little bit unfair. You haven't even given us a chance. God could see into the heart, you see. 
He knew where Esau would end up. He knew where Jacob would end up. He knew what Jacob thought about the things of God and what Esau thought about him. God didn't hate Esau. He loved him, but he hated his attitude, that he cared little about the grace of God and the things of God. A warning here, if we spurn God's grace in our lives to cause us to live at peace with men and to be holy, he hates that attitude within us. He hates it. See, he has made grace available to you so that you can live at peace with all men. And you can be holy. And that's what he requires of us. And if we say, I'm not interested in receiving that from you, he hates us. So we need to be open to receive as much as God's grace as we possibly can. That's the first example of a man. Then we see the, the nation of Israel, how they, they despised God as well. They didn't listen to what God was asking them to do. We read of how the nation of Israel under Moses refused the grace. Remember, he told them to get ready and to prepare themselves. And in three days, when we'd ascend the mountain of God and we will go into the presence of God. It wasn't just for Moses. It wasn't just for Moses and the 70. It was for the whole nation of Israel to step into the promise of God. How gracious is that? Come, come, he says, come into my presence. Clean and prepare yourselves, he said outwardly. Then I will extend my grace to you so that you can enter into my presence. My plan for you is that you will fully obey and keep my covenant. Then out of all the nations in the world, you will be my treasured possession. See what I'm offering you. Although the whole earth is mine, you, Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation to the world. Prepare yourself now and come into my presence. Isn't that what God offers you? He says, come, come. Come into my presence. Come and dwell with me. Come and live with me. Do you remember as they approached the mountain and how scary it was? The fire and the shaking and the thunder and the smoke. And Moses says to them, don't rush. Keep back from the mountain. If anyone even touches the mountain or an animal touches this mountain, he'll be dead. We approach God with reverence and awe and fear. <laughs> We're not coming. We're not coming. Moses, you go. You go. We don't want to go. You go up the mountain. And they, they rejected the grace of God. What an invitation. What an invitation for the whole nation. You see, he loved them. He delivered them. He brought them out of captivity. And he took them down safely to Mount Sinai. And then he said, come up the mountain. 
Because I am going to make you a royal priesthood. I am going to, I'm going to so bless you above all the people of the earth and, and flow into you and you can go into all the world and tell everyone about me and how good I am. They said, we're not coming. We're not coming. God offers us his grace. And so often we reject his grace. They refused. They defied God. God's desire for a kingdom of priests would be de delayed until we get to the new covenant. And that's you. We're a royal priesthood. We are a nation of priests. And we must enter in and ascend the mount of the Lord. See, just as Esau the first son was rejected because he refused God, the eldest son was rejected because he refused the grace of God. So Israel, God's first son, also rejected him. Jacob the second son, who desired it, accepted the grace. It's a shadow, you see, of the church. It's a picture. It's a people under God who have accepted and not refused his grace. Jacob and Esau, nation of Israel, and us. It's a picture. They had to cleanse themselves outwardly before they could ascend the mountain. For three days they cleansed themselves, separated themselves, but, of course, we're cleansed on the inside, aren't we, by the blood of Jesus, an inward cleansing. And now he extends his grace to each one of us and says, come now, come up the mountain. Don't be so foolish to be like Esau, or so ridiculously foolish to be like the children of Israel, but come up the mountain. And I love this passage where he describes what the mountain is. Come, and he said, and live with me in my presence. Come into my presence. One course we're doing later on in the year is practicing the presence of God. Wow. Come into my presence. Come and live with me, he says, in joyful assembly with the angels. Come, come and live. This is what I'm offering you. Come, come in the church and live with your brothers and sisters. I, I suppose, because I've always worked in the church, my heart breaks for the church. Because when I read what the church should be and what it is, maybe it's the best it can ever be on earth. I don't know. But I just have a vision of what the church would be. Genuinely, lo genuinely loving, genuinely accepting and caring and nurturing and helping and supporting and just, just a beautiful place something else we've got to wait till the next world till we enjoy and see and then we'll go oh that was what it was supposed to be like oh that's how we were supposed to be like oh, i get it now well i think we sense it and see it in our spiritual and yet we seem to be at distance 
He said, come and be joined with the saints who have gone ahead of you. He said, come to Christ, the judge of all men. He said, come to Christ who sealed the new covenant in his blood. Come, he says, come up the mountain. Come, come to me. Come to Jesus whose blood cries out for mercy on your behalf. A mercy that God will not deny you. You see, when, when Cain's blood, Abel's blood, sorry, when Abel's blood cried out, it cried out, justice, justice, God, give me justice. But the blood of Christ cries out, mercy, mercy, mercy. And so his blood has been applied to our lives. And so when we stand before God, he sees the blood of Christ all over us and it cries out, mercy, God, mercy, mercy. And of course, it cannot be denied because it's the blood of Christ. It cannot be denied. See, we haven't pushed Christ to one side and trampled over him and and run into sin. We've taken the blood and we've applied it to ourselves. And the blood cries for mercy that cannot be denied. See to it, he says, that you do not refuse him who speaks. God's grace is freely available to us. This is to enable us to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Holy. His grace is available. To fulfill those two goals. At Sinai, they turned away from God's grace. And where did they end up when they turned from his grace? (laughs) In the wilderness. In the wilderness. Their bodies strewn in the sand, it says. In the wilderness. Uh, Christians whose bodies are in the wilderness. Strewn in the sand. When he says, come up the mountain. Come up the mountain, receive my grace. Now God's spirit lives in us. We have far less excuse, you see. They had a good excuse in the Old Testament. God spoke to them clearly. We have no excuse. Because his Holy Spirit lives in us. We're not only called by God, we're driven on the inside, forward, We're pushed forward by the Spirit. We're pushed, pushed into his presence. And what's this shaking that's going to happen that we've read about here? It says at Mount Sinai, God shook the earth with terrifying consequences. I can sort of sympathize. They were a bit terrified of going up the mountain. You, you know, bellows of smoke and fire coming out of the mountain and the shaking that's going on. And they thought, we can't do this. Well, it was a pattern. See, when you come to God, there's a shaking that takes place. As you press on up the mountain, You think, this is going to be jolly. It's not jolly at all. When he calls us up the mountain into his presence, as we ascend, he starts to shake our lives. And everything that's not of him, it says every created thing, everything around you, and that's everything that's created, it falls away from you. It's as though it, 
it has no place with you. All the material things, all the things of this world, everything that can be shaken is shaken, and all you're left with is you and the kingdom of God. Things, it says, pertaining to this world, they will all fall away, and only what is of God will remain in your life. All that God will allow to remain in our lives are the things of the kingdom. He says, pursue righteousness and all this stuff that you might need, it will be added to you. But first he has to shake it off you so you can pursue him and nothing else, just him. And then he says, whatever you need, I'll add it. Don't worry about it. I know you need stuff, but I'll just give you the stuff you need. He will come, he says as a consuming fire. Remember that's what John the Baptist said about Jesus? There is one who's coming after me, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Do you want the baptism of fire? See, this baptism of fire was, and John explains what it is. He says on the threshing floor, remember, they, they put the winnowing fork in and they throw it up into the air and all the chaff, blows away, and the seed that is the wholesome part drops to the ground. And what happens to the chaff? It's burnt up. God wants to burn up that in our lives, which is just chaff. And so all we're left is, is God and the things of God. A consuming fire burning in our lives. And why will he do this? Because he wants the best for us. That's it. And how we cling to the things of this earth as we let them go begrudgingly. When he says, let me shake you, shake all this stuff and burn it all up. And it's just me and you. Because in eternity, it'll just be you and him. There won't be anything else. Just you and him. Okay. God bless you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching. And please come back next week for some more great teaching on the Hebrews Warning Module. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can now do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.